0: guys, welcome to Thrive, the podcast from the John Good Group looking at the good, bad and ugly of family businesses. Today we have William Lee Jones uh, joining us from JW Lee's Brewery over here in Manchester. I think there's three massive themes from this conversation. So sit back, relax, listen in and we will catch you on the other side. Well William, uh, thank you for joining us on Thrive. I'm going to start off by asking you, as we're sat in this amazing room, Um, What does it feel like to be standing on the shoulders of so many giants that have been so influential in the company's history? How does that make you feel? Um, Wow, difficult question to start with. Um, I I think like all
1: family businesses that you go through cycles, and in my mind, I was never overfaced by coming into the family business. And it's really a question of each generation begins a new chapter. And so it's, what are we going to do differently in this chapter that we uh, weren't doing previously
0: okay so when you look around a room like this do you see yourself as a portrait one day of one of the influential people that made that change as the generation shifted is that something you ever reflect on
1: um no i'm i'm kind of um not really interested in having my portrait done (laughs) (laughs) it's um it's weird because um this whole room is a fake in that This um, is something that we created. So um, historically, um, on this side of the room, we've got the panelling from Thomas Beatty's in Liverpool, which was a business that we bought. Uh, And that extends to this little corner as well. And then that side has been faked by some people that make bars for us. So so, uh, yes, on the one hand, you've got all of the uh, heroes of each generation of our family business but we haven't got enough wall space and so all the villains have been taken down and so um, if you're
0: up on the wall you're a hero if you're not on the wall you're a villain but that, that's how it works I'm not saying that I'm a villain <laughs>
1: but um, I think there's a little bit of um, vanity that you know if you look at the uh, the grandfather clock here mm-hmm. you know, bear in mind that this room uh, basically uh, hasn't changed much since 1828 since the business was first founded okay and so I remember my father, who's got his picture up there, uh, he, he was the first non-London brewer to be a master of the Brewers' Livery Company in the City of London. And so when you're in one of those sort of public positions, you're allowed to commission a coat of arms.
0: Okay.
1: So he went down with the um, Weave Truth With Trust uh, logo on the grandfather clock mm-hmm. uh, to be told by the College of Arms that it was just a Victorian forgery. Uh, but it had been something that we thought was true for over 100 years. So you kind of keep finding these things out.
0: Uh-huh. Superb. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the start. Um, just talk to me about how the business was founded in those early, early years uh, for, for the business.
1: So John Lee's, who you can see behind you, mm-hmm. sort of uh, his portrait it looks like like he was about 14. Was
0: a very young man, by judging by the portrait.
1: And... Um, if you go into every single one of our pubs, you'll find his portrait above a fireplace with two sort of standard armchairs on either side of it, okay. and and that's very much part of our story. Yeah, you know, we want people to feel that they're in a family business, and so that portrait of our founder. And the strange thing is that uh, this was his hobby business that he previously had been in the cotton trade. Okay. And so he sold uh, his cotton mills, and in 1828, uh, he started a brewery. Mm-hmm. And it was, like I say, it was a bit of a hobby business. And then he had two sons. Um, they kind of kept the business going, and then it was really his his grandson, this formidable uh, John Willie Lees, who mm-hmm. um, he rebuilt the brewery in 1878. Uh, he died in 1906. He was a, a proper entrepreneur, okay. and he he was really the visionary that when he passed away in 1906 uh, the business went into the trusteeship that my grandfather benefited from and so he then inherited the business with his brother Um, he bought out his brother my father and uncle then came into the business in the 1950s Mm -hmm. and then my brother and cousins and I joined the business in the 1990s and so um since 1906 we've had uh Perhaps a clearer history than the early days.
0: Okay, so you came into the business in the nineties. Talk to me about how your career started within the family business.
1: Well, I think like everybody in any family business, that I started uh, basically humping boxes of uh, beer up up steps during the sort of school holidays. Okay. And it was one of those ones where, yeah, you know, I used to. Typically, go and work in in one of our shops. We had we had um, wine spirit shops in those days. And you know, when I look at my kids, they've all worked in the business in different contexts. Um, I think my youngest has been uh, he's been P forty five twice now. <laughs> um, he's not very good at doing his online training. And, right, <laughs> um, and it's one of these ones where you know it, it was a great moment. Um, I say it's a great moment, it's funny moment um, three or four years ago. Um, He's he's sort of got some post and kids don't get much post Mm -hmm. and he's opening this letter. He goes, Dad, I've been been sacked again. And uh, he goes, do you know about this? I go, look, I've got absolutely (laughs) no idea about it. But um, what I do know is that, you know, our managers um, who who manage our pubs, um, they're pretty uh, well run. They're pretty disciplined. You know, they know that people have got to have done their health and safety training. They get bonused in terms of um, how many people... Um, have done it and you know from a early age let's say that you know I think everybody's first job um, is in a pub it's just that we happen to be the people that um, own and run the business Uh
0: and so you got involved you're working your way through the ranks here when did you did you always know you were going to take on the the mantle of running the organization or did that sort of uh, evolve over a period of time
1: um no I, I didn't work my way through the ranks okay. so um i um I used to work in the shops and then um just before going to university i did a shift um working in one of our pubs for um four or five months mm-hmm. uh, got some money together before um doing a bit of travelling and then I went off down to um down london um ended up running an advertising agency at the tender age of of twenty eight okay and um, one of the things that we have in the business is a sort of five-year rule that everybody spends uh, five years uh, learning a craft, doing something different um, before coming back uh, to the family business. And um, I actually spent eight years down um, in in London after graduating. And yeah, I'd come home and my grandmother would be there and she'd say, when are you going to join your father and uncle in the business? Can't you see that they're getting old? They need your help. And so... I joined the business and was quickly parachuted into a senior management role. Okay. Uh, whereas my uh, my brother and my cousin they they really were working their way through the ranks, uh-huh. which uh, seemed a little bit unfair at the time. But then I ended up as managing director, and that was never necessarily the intention. Uh, but at the same time that was how it worked out
0: okay and when you landed back in on that day one and your you know your relatives have been in the business for a little while and you've come in at the senior role how, how did that work was it was it all positive was there some sort of ruffled feathers how, how did you go through that period um,
1: I think that it's like any sort of career progression so as to speak that you know we have just over 1500 people on the payroll now mm-hmm. uh, you got some people who come up through the ranks from uh, the shop floor you got other people who are promoted to more senior roles Yeah, you know, one of the things that I was able to bring to the business was an experience of um, sales and marketing we'd never really had that previously and so from a pretty early stage of joining uh, was able to make an impact.
0: Mm-hmm. And Talk to me about that impact. So we're talking sales and marketing. So was it full rebrand, proposition development? Where, work? How do you really stamp your vision on the business?
1: Um, I, I guess in the early days, it was, it was really simple um, sort of sales management. You know, yeah. Historically, we had a bunch of uh, pubs all doing random things. We had a bunch of salespeople all doing sort of random things and establishing uh, what was the... USP of us as a business and if you go back to the early 1990s it was the time that Boddington's Brewery was very much the cream of Manchester Mm -hmm. and so our strategy um, was always to be uh, the beer that followed Boddington's because we could tell when AB InBev or it was Interbrew at the time uh, bought the Boddington's brand that it was going to become an off-trade brand and so in some ways it was Let's get the beers um, into a position where we've got uh, the right beers in the right segments of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's get the pubs into a position where we had standard operating procedures. We had um, menu formats. We were bringing food in at the time, which was led by um, my cousin who'd been in the, the catering industry. And how do we get those things from... Each being individual to being um, the J. W. Lee's brand that it is today.
0: Mm-hmm. So you talked about right at the start, uh, every generation makes its impact and wants to do its its thing and on its the the period of time that it's involved. Do you see that as the thing that you did? That professionalization, the creation of the proposition, is that is that what you would? Uh, that's how you see your era uh, leading the business.
1: Very much so. And I think that in the latter years, we've seen the creation of our inns and hotels business. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now have 341 bedrooms under um, our own management. Uh, Historically, we had a couple of hotels which were run very individually. And so how do we bring that guest experience so that uh, without dumbing down um, the, the businesses that you know they've got the same mattresses they've got the same tv systems mm-hmm. they've got everything that makes them stronger so to speak um, without um, them just becoming the last common denominator.
0: And what do you think your USP is now you know in terms of the marketplace what what do people really know you for what's what's that thing that you, yeah, you hang your hat on?
1: Uh, well we say that the brewery is at the heart of our business mm-hmm. and so that, yeah in a time where most of our competitors um, tend to be um, out-and-out retailers, so, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk in to a, a JDB Leeds pub, uh, you'll see um, a warm fire, you'll see a wicket of, of hand pulls, and you'll get um, fantastic welcome, fantastic hospitality. Mm-hmm. And for instance, you know, if I go back to, say, 2007, when the smoking ban came in, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, big challenges in the pub trade is how do you get the, uh, uh, the smokers? Because the smokers used to be the boozers to stick around in your pubs. And, and actually that was the wrong question. Um, it's how do we continue to evolve uh, the pub? So it's a central part of people's lives. And so in some ways, after we'd worked out that just sort of chasing smokers wasn't a particularly good idea, you sort of stand back from it and you sort of going, well, where are our customers of the future going to come from? And you suddenly realise that it's not the things that you're currently doing that are going to be paramount to your future. So if I give you an example, one of the things that um, we really concentrated on was Sunday lunch. Okay. And so the idea of how do we go from a sort of cheap cut of beef to um, a um, a really good um, piece, of, piece of meat. Um, some people like mashed potatoes, some people like roast potatoes. Mm-hmm. Why, why don't we serve both? Why don't we serve limitless Yorkshire puddings, uh, limitless uh, gravy? And then we got ourselves in the position now where our busiest pubs are doing 350 Sunday lunches. It's wow. become uh, the second or third busiest day of the week, which is which is kind of unusual because mm-hmm. um, you know, we used to be a sort of Friday night, Saturday night yeah. business. And in my mind, it's very much where we want to be in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's a really positive example of innovation in the face of challenge. In an industry which has been full of challenges over the last 20 years, smoking bans, one of those, pandemics, another. Do you want to talk to me about the time where it was really looking gloomy? You know, the outlook was really negative, and just what was going through your mind in the business and, and those actions and steps that you had to take? I, I think that
1: for anybody um, in, in hospitality, the, the lockdown was probably uh, the biggest challenge that any of us are ever going to face because. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a government that uh, said that we couldn't trade. And so, you know, they always say in any business that cash is king. Uh, we count the cash on a on a daily mm-hmm. basis. We uh, we take a lot, of, a lot of cash, although these days it's mostly uh, plastic. But at, at the worst point of the um, of the lockdown, we were burning through uh, £600,000 worth of cash in one week. Okay. And so there was always the belief that we would, yeah, if anyone was going to get through this, uh, then we were going to get through it. And so um, we sort of realised that we, we needed to act smart. And I think that um, there was a lot of contradiction because the, nobody knew what was um, what was going on. Um, and I don't think that we'll find out for a number of years, which countries uh, particularly got this right. But Mm -hmm. if we go back to um, what we were trying to do, uh, we were just trying to survive. And so, you know, number one was protect cash. And that meant that, you know, we had building projects that we were halfway through. So we just shuttered all of those buildings. We had hotels that, um, hotels, for instance, I didn't realise this and it sounds obvious, hotels don't have burglar alarm systems. Okay. Because they never shut. Yeah. (laughs) And so all of a sudden you've got these assets that are vulnerable mm-hmm. because um, they could be broken into. Um, although I, I think, I don't know, um, that crime seemed to go down during the lockdowns okay. because um, people um, were getting stopped if they were out on the street, so to speak. So we didn't have a huge amount of problems with things getting broken into, but what we did have is an awful lot of neglect. And mm-hmm. so uh, plants were growing like crazy. Uh, freezers were breaking down but we didn't know about it and um, going to clear them out afterwards was pretty horrible. Um, but then, because of all of the help that the government uh, gave the hospitality sector with um, reduced VAT and no business rates and, and furlough where you could literally sort of turn it on and off in terms mm-hmm. of were people working or not, uh, we then found ourselves going from the biggest losses the company had ever made to the biggest profits the company had Mm -hmm. ever made. And so last year we thought, um, we thought, wow, you know, we've, we've bounced back and this is, uh, this is, (laughs) this is all really good. And then we went into the um, energy crisis with the war Mm -hmm. um, in Ukraine. And I think that with high interest rates at the moment, that we've we've almost had uh, three and a half years of, um, management to survive mm-hmm. and, and and getting people to to realize that we have the sort of same old challenges that we had before we went into all of these things um is quite a big thing because people are used to that sort of crisis management way of running the business
0: yeah has that um you know run of events do you see fatigue in the team in terms of you know it's there's another thing and there's another thing and trying to find what the new normal looks like is still for many businesses, still feel slightly out of reach because it's just challenge after challenge after challenge. Have you seen any of that in in your teams?
1: I I think that we've been less exposed to it than places like central London. I think that there's been a a huge reluctance for people to get back to business as usual, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, We always said, you know, from a work perspective, um, that colleagues who who are in the front line working in our pubs and inns and hotels uh you know they can't work from home Mm -hmm. so nobody else can yeah and so similarly with 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 colleagues who are sort of driving um vans brewing beer um we needed to re-establish sort of work patterns um the difficulty is that our customers haven't done that and Mm -hmm. so uh working out what the best thing to do is um coupled with uh, the challenges of Brexit in terms of um, that with an awful lot of casual workers so to speak who used to come and go. Uh, we got pretty full employment so um, recruitment uh, continues to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear of people who um, are saying look, we yeah we're just shutting on Mondays and Tuesdays. Well, um, you then get challenges that um, you know, Monday night um, Monday night football, you've got a lot of places that you know they want to be open uh, for that and the other side of it is that for a lot of people, you know, the pub is like the sort of third place. They've got home, they've got work, and then they've got the place that they go to relax. And so mm-hmm. if you suddenly arrive to discover that it's shut, uh, well, people will find somewhere else to go. And yep. so, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that we believe uh, that we want to be open um, seven days a week. Uh, we want to be open um, all day. And a combination of... Um, rising costs and inflation and particularly the challenges of energy have made it uneconomic to do that
0: Mm -hmm. okay so if we look ahead where do you see the industry moving and where do you see the business moving with the industry what does that look like
1: i think i think that the industry hospitality has always been incredibly um, resilient i always reckon that people yeah, they go out to celebrate, they they go out to commiserate. Mm-hmm. And so as long as we're not doing anything completely stupid and um we're keeping um an eye on all of those uh costs, um, I think we're gonna be okay. But um it has been challenging because we've got a whole generation of managers who haven't had to deal with uh high levels of inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had um you know, things like you know our electricity price that uh, that that trebled. Uh, yes, if you um, if if you put a load of behaviours in and uh, change the way you do things, you might be able to reduce um, the amount of electricity used by twenty, maybe even thirty mm-hmm. percent. But it's not going to defray uh, that very high volatility that we've experienced. Uh, similarly with um, with with raw materials, and so this has led to. Um, a lot of increase is in prices and uh, we talk about food price inflation uh, which is still bouncing around between 10 and 15 percent yeah uh, and you get to a point where you know people um are struggling to uh you know turn on an oven to uh, heat up a can of soup so as so to speak mm-hmm. so w- what chance have you got that they're going to go out and spend and you're money-
0: seeing that you're seeing that dip in in sales around some of those those, those sort of food products
1: um, at the moment, I think we're in a little bit of a um, sort of paradise. Yeah, you know, it's it's the summer. Um, okay. I, I think I think it's going to be a um, I think it's going to be a long hard winter. We're just starting to see on on different days um, sales below last year, which when you think that prices um, are up more than ten percent, so, so to speak, you know mm-hmm. that um, that that indicates a uh, um, reduction in the level of footfall. Uh, but at the same time. Um, yeah, you know, we'd like to believe that what we offer is yeah, you know, it's an affordable treat, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's something that's part of people's uh, lives, and and certainly, um, people really valued being able to go back into pubs again um, after they've been uh, reopened after the lockdown.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's change tack slightly. Let's let's talk back about the family. So, talk to me about the the how many members of the family are in the business at the moment? What roles do they do? How, how does that all work?
1: So, at the moment, um, there are two of us in in the family in um, in full time roles, which is my cousin Michael, who's our production director, and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, uh, he works in the company three days a week. Um, doing acquisitions he's a he's a chartered surveyor okay uh, he had been our property director and he stepped down to three days a week um probably about five years ago um my father who's just celebrated his 90th birthday wow. um he, he comes into the business once or twice a week mm-hmm. um he was um our chairman until two or three years ago Mm-hmm and um still sits on the board as does my uncle who's um again in his his late 80s um my sister who is a fund manager down in the city of london she uh, is a non-exec she looks after our pension fund Uh, my cousin who again she was our uh, catering manager she set up catering um within our business she uh, stepped down from a day-to-day role uh, probably about 10 years ago now. And so we have the five members of the uh, sixth generation um, and the two members of the fifth generation. So the seven of us uh, all sit on the company's main board. Uh, and then we have my eldest son, who's 27. He He's just joined the business, so he's uh, on his induction at the moment. Okay so he's one of 11 and um if you ask me next is he is he going to run the business next i've got no idea and so uh like lots of intergenerational family businesses um his youngest uh cousin is is doing their GCSEs or has just finished their GCSEs yep. and so one of the things that we we try to do is that once twice a year we get all the family together and so, all the cousins have, have quite a good relationship, and we do some sort of businessy type stuff with them, which is quite challenging because okay. if you've got um, some at university and some, like I say, doing GCSEs, giving them sort of an economics masterclass isn't going to go down challenge. too well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, we're very keen uh, for JDB Lee's to remain an independent family business. Mm hmm. And that level of business education for the next generation of the family, uh, we see as being really important. Um, Again, we have the the five-year rule Mm -hmm. in terms of go and do something in the big wide world and come back and and, and bring us that experience and those skills. Uh, But also, between them being um, 18 and and leaving university, uh, to come and do a sort of formal uh, two-week internship with us where they can learn about the business to give them uh, some informed information so that uh, when they get a bit older, so, so to speak, um, that it's not just this uh, business up there in Manchester that bakes beer and has a few pubs.
0: Yeah. So... Despite maybe not having a formalised succession process in place, there is actually quite a lot, isn't there, to, to bring the generations together. Do you rely on it? Is there a family charter? Is there any sort of rules that are written down that you lean back on? Or is, is it all handled reasonably informally?
1: formally? Uh, we, we have a family constitution. Okay. And um, that kind of came about probably 20 years ago after we'd engaged with the Family Business Network. Mm-hmm. And... Um, We went off and we attended the Leading the Family Business program at the Business School in Lausanne, and so we work with a number of advisors. And I think probably at this moment in time, the the biggest thing that we've done is is bringing in non-exec directors. Okay. So our chairman is a um, corporate lawyer by training. Uh, He uh, he's a guy called Jim Tully. he went into the co-op group as their chief legal counsel to sort out um, all the mess that um, that was there and decided that he wanted to have a plural career in, in business rather than go back into professional practice. And we've also recently recruited um, Simon Townsend uh, as a non-exec director. Uh, Simon was until quite recently the chief executive of uh, EI Enterprises, mm-hmm. which was the... Uh, the biggest pub company in the uk and i guess that from the two of them what we're looking for is for them to be a bit of a foil for the family so that they can coach and mentor the next generation of the family mm-hmm. and, and at the same time uh, say to their respective parents you know you've got a job to do as a parent you've got a job to do uh, as a coach so to speak so let's uh, let's keep these things at a distance
0: yeah okay you've got a number of family members, whether that be executive roles or around the board, how, um, how does decision-making work? Do you find um, that it spills out into lots of other family occasions or is it very clearly around the board table? How, how does that all work within the business?
1: Well, the good thing about a business like ours is that it's all about empowerment, that okay. um, we work really hard at the sort of systems and processes that we have in the business. And so yeah, every general manager of every pub is essentially running a million pound business that employs 40 people. Mm-hmm. And so each of those individuals is incredibly important within the business. And so if we then look at the structures that we have in place uh, here at the centre, we have the um, the board of directors, which is there to um, look at policy. We, we have the management board that's there to uh, run the day-to-day business. And then we've got the various... Uh, heads of department who are there to, to sort of deliver against that plan and so i guess that um yeah i, I will be made aware of all the various crises that are going on um mm-hmm. in our business and they happen every day Yeah, uh, but at the same time the, the three trading directors that run the three distinct parts of the business will typically deal with those um themselves and mm-hmm. so uh you know, if you bear in mind that you know, in a typical week, uh, we'll serve um, 40,000 meals. Uh, it's always great to hear from members of the family that um, their um, Yorkshire pudding was a little bit soggy. Uh, but um, the first thing I'll do on a, on a Monday is look at all of the guest feedback that we've had from the previous week. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of those jobs that um, yeah, there's normally a couple of thousand pieces of individual feedback from you know the, uh, uh, the the tap in room 6 is, is 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 dripping um through to uh things that are perhaps um more personal so, uh-huh. so to speak
0: and and that's your way of keeping in touch with that end customer is that the the best way you found to do that
1: um yes and no i think that um getting out into the pubs that's that's really important. Getting yeah. out into our competitors' uh, sites is equally important. You know, one of the reasons that we still have a, um, a a sales force going out into the sort of free trade, as we call it. Uh, you know, for me, they are are eyes and ears, and so typically uh, independent traders will will pick up on uh, trends before um, big chains or even mm-hmm. small chains uh, like us do. And so having that sort of rounded business and and just being interested in terms of what is it that's happening in our sector. And when I say being interested, that, you know, um, knowing enough about it, but being focused on our own business. And so, you know, if I look at it, um, you know, this morning, you know, I get up and I look at uh, Le Pan Cotidian, which, yeah, I think do one of the best breakfasts that you can get if you're in London so to Mm -hmm. speak you know they've just gone into administration and you sort of go well why have they gone into administration and then you get into the the sort of question should we be doing breakfast and you sort of go well if someone that's specializing in breakfast can't do breakfast well what chance have we got and Uh I think that those are the things that um are really important which is working out the things that we should be doing Mm -hmm. and what are the things that we should not be doing Mm
0: -hmm. Do you remember a time on that theme where looking back, you've just made a brilliant decision? That you you look back and go, that was a that was a great decision. And and what was it?
1: Um I'm I'm not great at making brilliant decisions. I'm really good at making <laughs> bad decisions. Uh, you remember the bad ones. I'll much ask you more that one than, in a minute. Than, than, than the brilliant decisions. Um I, I think that um Brilliant decisions tend to be hiring great people, okay. um, buying great sites. Probably one of the cleverer decisions that we made was um, brewing Holston Export under licence. That um, at the time um, we we had our own lagers that we were brewing, but they they weren't brands, and the larger breweries looking to divest themselves of what they saw as sort of sunset brands. Mm-hmm. And so that led to a conversation with Carlsberg, which then led to us brewing Carlsberg under license, which then led to us um, kegging San Miguel under license. And so you know, San Miguel is probably uh, the biggest beer in our business at the moment, so, mm-hmm. so to speak. And you know why people want to buy a, a sort of Spanish lager in the UK, I don't know, but yep. we're there to help them.
0: Okay. So you've already given me this hint. Talk to me about some of the worst decisions. Um, I think probably the worst decisions, I, I think
1: our Willoughby's Wine Warehouse was up there okay. because uh, at the time, you know, we had a wine business and we were sort of saying to ourselves, what are we doing with this wine business? And we looked and admired the majestic wine warehouses. And so we got all the numbers and we did a pilot site and the pilot site went really, really well. So we then, feeling overly confident, uh, we gazumped majestic on a on a site, mm-hmm. and uh, they did what any big brand does: is they went and go look at our operation, and then they opened up just down the road, okay. and uh, and we got it to a point where it was just about profitable, and we were sort of scratching our heads and thinking, well, where do we go from here? Because um, this was a business that we got involved with on on the back of our history rather than our future. And the the customer was moving more and more towards buying wine from supermarkets. Majestic would deliver it uh, to your home Mm -hmm. free of charge. And all of a sudden you kind of realise that um, the, the reason they've got such a brilliant business is not that it's a retail business. It's the fact that they've got all of these stores up and down the UK that act as little mini remote warehouses so that they can then run their internet business mm-hmm. on the back of the stores. And we suddenly realised, ah, uh, we, we didn't have that. Okay. And so that was the uh, that was the learning. And um, and it, it, they always say, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to get into things than to get out of them. So uh, we've finally got out of that business. Our last okay. uh, lease has been uh, assigned to okay. uh, someone else. Yeah. And, um, and you live and learn. But, you know, I think that... Um, if you never try anything, uh, you never go forwards. So, yeah,
0: so, um, so what's what would if if the listeners were to take a lesson from that? What would you say the lesson is? Um,
1: know know your strengths, and um, you know I, I think in in that case, um, we were just spreading ourselves too thin in terms of management time. There was things going on all over the business. Mm-hmm. We ended up being massively overstocked we were running um a great business but then you sort of scratch your head and you're sort of going well we've got it to break even point um do we want to roll it out you sort of going absolutely not (laughs) and yeah if we'd spend a little bit more time um in preparation uh then we probably wouldn't have done it but then if you overanalyze things too much then you never never do anything
0: correct okay um let's switch tack again slightly sustainability it's a big issue facing businesses all over the country um how is that impacting your trade and what is the business doing to address some of those issues
1: uh sustainability has always been huge uh, from a brewing perspective and so uh, if you go around a typical brewery uh, we have strange names for things in breweries that we, we don't call water water we call it liquor okay so the first thing you do is that you have a cold liquor tank and a hot liquor tank. Mm-hmm. And so we we happen to be in the perfect part of the UK to brew beer and uh, we owe that to our competitor, Joseph Holtz, because Sir Edward Holt built the uh, aqueduct that brings water to Manchester from Thirlmere in the Lake District. Okay. So um, we unashamedly brew our beer with uh, tap water. Mm-hmm. And people will say that you have to go to Burton-on-Trent because of the uh, uh, Burton water. So you start with the you start with the water uh, and you then boil the water and um, you then have to cool it down. And so to do that, you use a paraflow. Mm-hmm. And so the hot water gets colder, the cold water uh, gets warmer. And even, you know, when I join the industry which is nearly 30 years ago uh, you would measure the efficiency of your brewery in terms of how many uh, pints of water did you use to brew um, a pint of beer okay and at the time uh, the answer was uh, eight Uh, the most efficient breweries in the uk uh, are now doing it in two and a half you then separate uh, the dirty water from the clean water so which water are you using um for washing as opposed to brewing. Uh, And then you get into energy usage. And so from a a sector perspective, because we've been doing this for a long, long time, because we're an energy-hungry industry, um, we're actually pretty good at it. Okay. Um, You then get down to um, the logistics side of it. And and again, one of the challenges that we face in Greater Manchester... Um, The mayor, Andy Burnham, intervened with the clean air zone. Mm -hmm. Um, We we have too many um, vehicle movements um, on the road. And you then get into the question of how do you uh, reduce the amount of vehicle movements? Uh, And we all know that you can go on your phone and a a van will deliver something to your home uh, tomorrow and you sort of scratch your head and you think, is that really economic for them to deliver that one toothbrush Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be? So how do we reduce the number of vehicle movements on the road? And it's something that people aren't talking about. And so what I'd like to see in in our sector is some form of consolidation where for that last 10 miles that the industry can work together. And it's something that um, has happened in other European countries. Uh, It's not happened in the UK. Uh, Similarly, from a a food perspective, that you'll have um, some sites that, again, they get, Hundreds of deliveries every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how can we could reduce uh, those movements, and and then you get into um, uh, waste. You know, ninety eight and a half percent of all of the waste that goes into our bins in all of our pubs is, is recycled. Uh, how do we do that? We don't separate the waste, uh, which kind of people scratch their heads and think yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. Uh, but what we do do is that we work with a waste disposal company who use all of the magnets and sieves and clever industrial ways of recycling industrial waste. So that all happens uh, on their sites, not on our sites, which means that we're much, much more efficient than, say, um, a local authority. And so to answer your question, um, we've taken a very positive decision that we will not be greenwashing our business with um, you know silly things like um, solar panels that that Mm -hmm. don't work Mm -hmm. and uh, what we will be doing uh, is that we'll be engineering our buildings and our processes and and, and training um, our people in a way that is um, sustainable from a long-term perspective and so um, what are we doing about it um, at the moment, we've got hundreds of reports and we've got hundreds of best practice that's been, um, that's been brought in uh, by lots of different people. Even our bank um, have put together um, a series of recommendations which are conditional uh, for us in terms of our borrowing that everybody wants to be doing things in a sustainable way. And so to interpret all of those rather than give individual interpretation. We brought an MBA placement student in and so their job is to um, go through every single uh, different report and to help us come up with a meaningful strategy for what that actually means.
0: Interesting approach uh, and how long do you expect that that process to take?
1: Uh, forever. Right okay. I, I think it's one of those things that um, we, we will um, we'll put together um, our plan um, and, and I think this is where some of the decisions are are really complicated mm-hmm. and so for instance we now have um, 60 electrical uh, charging points within our um, within our pub estate but working with partners who we've signed uh, long-term agreements with so 15-year agreements for them to be able to put the power in so that people can then use those yep. Um, sort of spaces in a in a sustainable way rather than a transactional way where we're just sort of saying, can we sell people some cheap electricity when they happen to be in our pubs? Mm-hmm. And yeah, making sure that the um power is at the right level. And yeah, when you take it to a board level and you sort of go, Well, who drives an electrical car? And you have people say, Well, I'm I'm waiting for hydrogen to come along and you mm-hmm. sort of go, Well, you know, we, we we can't wait forever. We need to decide um, what our strategy is so to speak
0: okay interesting um i'll finish with three quick fire questions these are our signature questions on thrive so what do you dislike about being a business owner
1: um my wife saying um when are you going to stop working because uh <laughs> you never do
0: okay what do you love about being a business owner
1: um I, I love leadership. I think that uh, to be able to um, lead this organisation and, you know, in my short time here, uh, you know, we've created more than a thousand jobs. I feel very proud of that.
0: Okay. And if you could change one thing in the world of business, what would it be?
1: One thing, um, I'd I get rid of regulation because I think that um, good business self-regulates and a bit like we were saying with sustainability, that customers... smart they don't want to do business with bad businesses Mm -hmm.
0: and if you could remove one piece of legislation
1: um at the moment it'd be the uh the epr regime that's coming around the corner in in, in terms of the extended producer responsibility to glass plastics and cans because uh it, it just looks like a really bad idea
0: okay and what impact is that going to have on the business
1: Um, On on our sector, the impact will just be enormous. And the only thing that I can see is that it's going to continue to fuel uh, price inflation, which uh, can't be a good thing.
0: Okay. Well, William, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It's been fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with William. I certainly did. I mentioned at the start, I thought there was three big themes that was coming out of the uh, conversation today. The first is adaptability in the face of challenge. Um, uh, William described a number of really material issues which have impacted all aspects of the business over the last few decades and just how they've gone about dealing with them. And it really is a story of resilience. The second area for me was there's a clear understanding of the proposition of the business and that it is way beyond the product. Uh, The guys really, truly understand their place in society and what their product and their service means for their patrons. So I think that was a really interesting insight from what could potentially just be labelled as a product-type business. It is far, far beyond that. Last but not least was the way that the family handles succession. And despite not having necessarily a formal succession plan, it's really evident that they're thinking about succession all the time. There's the five years that people need to spend outside of the business to gain experience. There's the company charter. And there's also, for the younger generations, the the annual get-together of the shareholders to make sure that they're all understanding the business and they are starting to think about potentially their place within the business. And I think that's a really, really interesting insight for those other family businesses out there. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did thank you very much for joining to thrive and we look forward to joining you on our next session cheers guys